Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity to sit under the preaching of your holy word. We come now with confidence that this word comes not from the thoughts and imaginations of men, but rather your prophets spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit to give us the infallible word of God. Give us a true reverence for your word that we might receive it as from your lips and humbly submit to it in our hearts and our lives. For we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please open your Bibles now to our sermon text, Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, in your pew Bibles on page 948. So Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. On June 17th, 2015, A 21-year-old man walked into a Bible study in the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. He proceeded to shoot and murder nine people, and he injured one other. After a brief manhunt, he was arrested. Trial, he was sentenced to death, and he is currently behind bars, pursuing an appeal. However, what stands out about the Charleston shooting is the response of many members of the community. Among the black church community, there was an outpouring of forgiveness toward the murderer. But not all lauded this response. Some said that to forgive so quickly was injurious to the proper grieving process. Others said that to forgive was to undermine the pursuit of social justice and to undermine the progress of black equity in America. And this was not the first occurrence of forgiveness after tragedy in America. Perhaps you remember the shooting at a one-room schoolhouse among the old order Amish in Lancaster County in 2006. In this case, 10 young girls were shot, five killed, and then the gunman took his own life. And yet the response of the Amish community following the teaching of Jesus Christ was forgiveness toward the evildoer. In the very opening chapters of the Bible, we have the words of Lamech, the seventh from Adam in the line of Cain, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. 
Genesis 4, 23 through 24. In other words, Lamech boasts of his exaggerated vengeance for a simple wound he killed. Imagine what he would do if one of his children were murdered. Perhaps he would kill the murderer and then proceed to murder 77 of his relatives. But contrast this to the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 18, 21 through 22. And Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Jesus seems almost to craft his response to Peter in direct contradiction to the saying of Lamech. This is in part because the number seven is the number of symbolic fullness in the Bible, and 77 is the way to double that number. But still, you see how Jesus' message is the exact opposite of Lamech's. Rather than repaying the one who does you wrong, only 77 times stronger. Jesus says, forgive, even if you have to do it 77 times, really meaning an endless number of times. And not only are we to forgive those who do us wrong, but as Jesus says in Luke 6, 27 and 28, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. This morning, we're continuing our series through Paul's letter to the Romans as he is teaching us how we are to respond to the amazing grace of God to us in the Bible. Amazing grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. How are we to respond except to present ourselves to God as a living, holy sacrifice, well-pleasing to God? Last time we saw how we are to love one another in the body of Christ with genuine love because we are members of one another. But in the midst of that section, one verse stood out. The one verse that was not focused on relationships within the body of Christ. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now in our passage this morning, Paul returns to this theme to explore it further. We'll work through our passage in four sections this morning. First, respond to evil with good. Second, live peaceably with all. Third, never avenge yourselves. And fourth, overcome evil with good. So first, respond to evil with good. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Here Paul is building on what he introduced in verse 14. To not curse those who persecute us, but rather respond with blessing. This is, of course, based on the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, which we read earlier. Jesus forbids his followers from exacting an eye for an eye. And we should note here, this teaching is applied, applied to individuals, not to civil governments, which, of course, must continue to punish evildoers, and which Paul will go on to address in verse, in chapter 13. Instead, Jesus calls us to turn the other cheek, to give to the one who takes from us. It was common in those days for a Roman soldier to conscript a person to carry a load for him. And the law said he was permitted to do this for up to one mile. But Jesus said, go with him two miles. 
And if you can, use that opportunity to share the gospel with him. The opposite of repaying evil for evil is repaying evil with good, with blessing, with love. And here the negative, repay evil, repay no one evil for evil, is paired with the positive. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. To give thought means that this will require consideration and planning. It's not something that will just happen by accident or on the spur of the moment. And how much less so in the case of those who have wronged you. In their case, it will require prayer and a considered decision to forgive them and then to plan how you will get back at them by doing them good rather than evil. The word translated honorable here could also be translated good or beautiful. When others do what is evil to us, we respond in a way that the whole world will see as good, honorable, even beautiful. And others will take note. When Jesus was being arrested in the garden, Peter lashed out and cut off a man's ear. But Jesus calmly responded with good, healing that man. Though some looked on and judged the Charlottesville community for being too quick to forgive the shooter, I remember a very different response to the Amish community when they expressed forgiveness towards the man who murdered their children. Although he had killed himself and they could no longer do any good for him directly, I remember the world looking on in awe at the expressions of forgiveness of the Amish community. The world took notice. So first, we are called to respond to evil with good. Second, live peaceably with all, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. God is a God of peace, and we as Christians are called to peace as well. And as Christians, we also know that we have been called out of darkness into Christ's kingdom of marvelous light, and now we are to shine as a city on a hill, shining light into this dark, dark world. We know that we will often be in conflict with a world that hates us, just as Jesus predicted. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, John fifteen nineteen. This is Paul also writes in 2 Timothy three twelve. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Although we will not always be at peace with all those around us, still that is to be our goal. So notice the two modifying phrases that, become, that come before the exhortation in this verse. First it says, if possible. Peace won't always be possible, but often it will be. And when it is, we are to cultivate peace. When peace is present, we are to preserve that peace. And when there is no peace, we are to make peace, just as Jesus called his disciples to be peacemakers in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, Matthew 5, 9. When others wage war on you, you are to wage peace, to offer the olive branch, to be the force for reconciliation. Now, certainly the practice of making peace is a topic that deserves its own uh, sermon. We're only scratching the surface this morning. 
The second phrase is, so far as it depends on you. And we are not to lack peace because of anything that we have done to stir up trouble with our neighbors. But if we are attacked because we are just living a faithful Christian life, worshiping God, quietly pursuing our own work, raising our children, doing what we can to tell others about Christ. If we are doing all these things and we are attacked because of them, all we can do is respond to persecution with blessing and love, as we must. Perhaps you have seen obnoxious Christians who are just looking to aggravate their neighbors and stir up unnecessary conflict. One example of this would be the late Fred Phelps and the Westboro Baptist Church when they picket funerals. They claim their goal is evangelism, but they behave in such a way as to provoke others to violence against them. This is exactly what is forbidden by this verse. Certainly we should evangelize, but our goal must be so far as it depends on us to live at peace with those around us. This brings us to our third point. Never avenge yourselves, but trust God to establish justice. The most common objection to the counsel given both by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount as well as by Paul here is this. What about justice? If we respond to evil with good, won't they just trample all over us? And if we allow people to trample all over us, won't evildoers escape justice? Won't they simply grow more powerful? Won't they be left free to take advantage of others? Don't we need to resist the evildoer? Although Paul doesn't explain the logic explicitly here in this passage, he will answer this objection in two main parts. Part one is found here in verse 19, and part two will follow in chapter 13. Let's take a look at part one now, and I'll say a few words about what's to come in part two in a moment. Verse 19 Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This verse opens with the tender address. Beloved, Paul reminds you that you are beloved because you will only be able to do what follows if you truly know that you are the beloved of God, an adopted son of God with the Holy Spirit the spirit of his son dwelling within you, empowering you to walk in newness of life. Because the natural instinct when a person wrongs you is the desire to get back at him, to avenge yourself, to repay wrong with an equal, if not greater, wrong. And your justification is that, well, this is justice, plain and simple, a balancing of the scales. But here God commands you in his word, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. And then he backs this up with a quotation, a quotation from Deuteronomy 32, 25, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He could have also quoted from Proverbs 20, 22, do not say I will repay evil, wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. Instead of wielding the sword of vengeance, you are to wield the sword of the Spirit, preaching the gospel and granting forgiveness to whoever wrongs you. 
And Jesus was the perfect example of this. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.23, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Recall how Jesus prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He prayed this for those who were putting him, the righteous one, the sinless lamb of God, putting him to death. And this is the example that we are called to follow. Rather than taking vengeance ourselves, we are to trust that God will repay every wrong. His wrath will reach the evildoer. He will establish justice. But you ask, how will he do so? When will he do so? Now, Paul doesn't give us all the answers right here in this verse. Let me give an answer in three parts. First, God's wrath revealed now in handing sinners over to their sin. We saw this back in Romans chapter 1, that God's wrath is already being revealed against those who suppress the knowledge of him in unrighteousness. It's being revealed in handing them over to their sin. Life in this world, in the grip of sin, under the power of the prince of this world, is not so pleasant. Sure, life in slavery to sin can seem shiny on the surface. It certainly has its fleeting pleasures. But it is a downward spiral, and its end is destruction. God's handing over sinners to their sin, the lessening of his restraint, it is a manifestation of God's present wrath against the wicked. I know that's perhaps not the most satisfying answer, but it's worth saying for the completeness to take, and it is the first of three answers this morning. Now, second, God's coming wrath on Judgment Day. And I believe that this is what Paul primarily has in mind here in verse 19. He's already written about this earlier in the letter in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. The only way to escape this judgment is to repent of your sins and to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul has been proclaiming all throughout this letter. Paul puts it this way in another letter. And I like the, the way he puts it here as he's writing to believers. Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 8. That day of great reversal is coming. And looking forward to that day with hope allows us not only to not take vengeance now, but also to forgive and to do good to those who persecute us. 
In fact, I think it is crucial to understand this point in order to be able to forgive and in order to be able to stop the cycle of violence that has so often plagued human societies. For consider this case. If you either do not believe in a God who will establish justice on the last day, or if you believe in the airy-fairy God of the liberal theologians who simply loves all people, and therefore he's not a God of wrath, but just a, a God of all love, and therefore he doesn't actually do anything about injustice. In this case, the only one left when your loved one has been slaughtered, to do something about it, is you. And who will stop you from taking justice into your own hands? But of course, there is a God who will establish justice, and he has said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And so, to take vengeance yourself would not only be to disobey his command here, it would also be to put yourself in the place of God. And that is a very serious sin. At the same time, I recognize that trusting God to repay at some unknown point in the future, we don't know when the Lord Jesus Christ will return, when judgment day will come, Trusting God to repay is not an easy thing to do. So let's consider a few practices and strategies that will help you to do this. First and foremost, you must turn to prayer. You will never forgive someone who has wronged you without asking God for the grace to do so. You will need to wrestle in prayer. Second, you must know your own sin, your own sinfulness. And along with that, you must know the grace of God towards you in Jesus Christ. It's only by grace you have been saved, only by his grace, that you yourself have escaped judgment day. And this not because of anything in you, but only because God has freely set his love upon you. Third, you need to meditate upon the cross. It is there that Christ bore the wrath of God in your place. The wrath that you deserve for your sin. And so your sin is completely dealt with, your guilt completely washed away. And it may even be that the person who sinned against you may repent. And his sins may have already been paid for by Christ, even if Christ's redemption has not yet been applied to that person by the Holy Spirit. And in fact, the Lord may even use your response of love to your enemy to bring about that very repentance and salvation. You never know. Fourth and finally, meditate on the day of coming judgment. It's terrifying to think upon it, for it concerns God's wrath poured out. And yet it is also a day when every wrong will be put right and every tear will be wiped away. The scales of justice will at last be perfectly balanced, never to be upset again. 
And it is because we know with certainty that that day is coming that we can endure with patience now. It is this certain hope that sustains us. God's wrath is coming for those who wrong us, those who shoot up buildings full of children. God's wrath is coming on Judgment Day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. But there is a third way that God's wrath is poured out even now on earth. Third, God has established civil government as an avenger to carry out his wrath on the evildoer. This is what I called part two earlier, and it is coming in the next chapter, chapter 13. But before we move on to chapter 13 in our Romans series, I've decided I'll set aside a few weeks to do a mini-series on the biblical theology of civil government. We'll begin that next Sunday. And this will help us to understand what Paul writes in the context of the whole Bible. The very brief preview for this morning as it relates to our passage is this. God has established civil government to punish those who do evil. So while you are not called or allowed to avenge yourself, you are to turn the other cheek to trust God to avenge. This does not mean that there is no justice on this earth. No, there is a remedy on this earth concerning justice, and that is civil government, which was established for this very purpose. For he, that is, the governing authority, is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, Romans 13, 4. In the case of the Charleston shooting, while many of the family members who lost loved ones personally forgave the shooter, they did not seek personal vengeance. This did not mean that the civil government did not have the duty to proceed with legal prosecution. God instituted civil government with these words in Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And in this case, a certain measure of justice will be complete when the death sentence that has been declared is finally carried out. And yet I say only a certain measure, for God's justice still awaits that shooter. And we also know from history, from the news, perhaps from your own experience, that this is not a perfect solution. That is, that human governors and governments do not achieve perfect justice on this earth. But perfect justice was not the Lord's intention in establishing human government. The purposes and the limitations of civil government are things we'll consider in our upcoming sermons. And so we must continue to trust that God will make all things right on that final day of judgment, on that day when the scales of justice will finally be perfectly balanced and every tear will at last be wiped away. While we trust for God to avenge and make all things right, how are we to respond to our persecutor in the meantime? This brings us to our fourth and final point this morning. Overcome evil with good, verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. This verse opens with the words, to the contrary. That is, rather than taking vengeance, this is what you ought to do. Then Paul quotes Proverbs 25, 21, and 22. This isn't the only proverb with this sort of message. There's also the warning of Proverbs 17, 13. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. You can immediately see how these proverbs are similar to what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. To respond to those who hate us and persecute us with kindness and love. And we also see practical suggestions here. Consider your enemy's needs, whether that be hunger or thirst. And this imagery of heaping burning coals on his head, it's not literal. It's a metaphor for heaping shame on our enemy with the end of hopefully leading him to repentance. While we know that repentance may not always be the result, it is our prayer whenever we respond to insults and harm with love and kindness. One biblical example of this is found in the story of King Saul and the young David. And Saul was pursuing after David to kill him. Saul went into a cave to relieve himself, not knowing that David was hiding inside, deep in the cave. Although David could easily have snuck up on Saul and killed him while he was vulnerable, he refused to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. But as a proof of his mercy, he cut off the corner of Saul's robe. After Saul had left the cave, David also emerged. He called after Saul and he told him what he had done. Saul was struck by his word, so struck even to the point of weeping. He responded to David by saying, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you, with good for what you have done to me this day, 1 Samuel 24, 17 to 19. And yet, sadly, this was only a temporary repentance. Saul would later return to seeking David's life. This does not undermine the fact that David did right in repaying evil with good, or the fact that we are commanded to do the same. We always do so with the prayer that the Lord would grant repentance, a true and lasting repentance that would lead to eternal life. Chapter 12 concludes with verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These words summarize the message of this entire passage. Instead of seeking to fight evil with evil, like fighting fire with more fire, We're to put it out with a heavy dose of cold water. We overcome evil with good. Here in Romans 12, it's not the only place where Paul teaches this message. He writes essentially the same thing in brief in 1 Thessalonians 5, 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This is what Paul practiced throughout his life. Although he had once been a persecutor of the church, after Christ had intervened in his life, he was transformed from persecutor to 
persecuted. And yet, though the Jews were his chief persecutors, he never became hard or embittered towards them. We saw back in chapter 9 how his heart was broken that so few of them had embraced their long-awaited Messiah. So much so that Paul was willing, even if it were possible, to be blotted out of the book of life for their salvation. And yet, the only one who can die for the salvation of another is Jesus Christ. And he is the very one that so many Jews were now rejecting. And to this day, there are many around the world who continue to persecute the church. While we are thankful to live in a country where there is very little persecution of Christians, there are many places around the world where this is not the case. Open Doors USA is a ministry that keeps a list called the World Watch of the 50 countries where Christians are most persecuted. Right now, Afghanistan stands at the top of that list with North Korea as a close second. 30 of the 50 countries, Islamic oppression is the chief source of persecution. And yet, in the midst of all this, there are believers who are reading this very passage and faithfully living it out, praying for their persecutors, overcoming evil with good. And there are Muslims who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We ought to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted for their faith around the world. But you don't have to have your life at risk in order to live in obedience to the passage before us this morning. Children, perhaps it's as small as how will you respond the next time you are pushed on the playground? Or the next time someone takes the toy you're playing with? The next time you're called a bad name? Will you repay evil with evil? Will you respond in kind? Or will you respond with kindness and love? And similarly for adults, if you're cut off as you drive or a person won't let you into their lane as you need to merge, how will you respond? Or if you have a difficult coworker or boss, how will you deal with him or her? When your spouse commits to do something and doesn't follow through, Will you retaliate, or will you respond graciously, first seeking understanding? Perhaps these seem like small, small potatoes, but it's the patterns we establish in dealing with the small things that prepare us for how we will respond when we are sinned against in more serious ways. If you have worn ruts in the road of repaying evil for evil, it will be very difficult to suddenly jump out of the ruts and repay evil with good when you are more grievously wronged. The Amish were only able to forgive when a great tragedy befell their community because they had been in the regular practice of forgiveness beforehand. And Jesus was able to pray, Father, forgive them because he had come to earth with one purpose in his heart, to give his life as a ransom for sinners. Have you received his gift? Have you received forgiveness in his name? If so, then you will also be able to forgive others. And you will then be able to trust God to do what is just and focus yourself 
on overcoming evil with love. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word that you have given to us. Challenging words, but words that are right and true and rooted deeply in the gospel of Jesus Christ, rooted deeply in the character of you, our God, a God who is love, but who loves so much that you are deeply angered when the people you love are wronged, deeply incensed at injustice, the God who will right every wrong. We pray, Lord, that you would also give us a deep sense of justice, but also give us a trust in you that you are the great judge of all mankind and you will make all things right. Give us also a right sense of our place in this world and what you have called us to do, to forgive those who have wronged us and to love all around us. Lord, we know that we need to be deeply rooted in the gospel, a deep understanding of our sin and your grace and your love towards us in Jesus Christ, to be filled with your spirit so that we might do these things. Lord, grow us, fill us with your spirit so that we might grow in the grace to be able to obey what has been laid out before us this morning. We uh, pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.